G'day, I'm Luke Tipple. Happy Shark Week and welcome to The Daily Bite, the show where we go behind the scenes with the stars of Shark Week and talk about one of our favourite subjects, sharks. Today we're joined by Dr. Tristan Guthridge to discuss his latest sharky mission that included not only Expedition Unknown's Josh Gates, but the legendary William Shatner. Let's have a listen. I want to comprehend the nature of fear and what better way uh, could I do it than uh, this icon and uh, the world's biggest wuss. Boy, it felt like it was going to be a compliment. I need to know, are you in or are you out? I'm in. We're going on a shark trek. Or it's Shat Week, whichever you prefer. Either way, I'm cool with it. When do we leave? Now. And I prefer shark trek. It's got a ring to Well, this show is definitely uh, one for the geekdom and fandom and looks like a lot of fun. Uh, Dr. Tristan Guthridge, how did this come about? Well, first of all, welcome to the show and welcome back to Daily Bites. Nice to be here. Great to chat again about sharks. Nothing I love more. For sure. Well, I mean, we've been chatting. I I feel like this is just kind of like one of our normal talks because we've talked about sharks a lot this year. And I know you've been doing a lot out in Bahamas um, and I want to talk about that. But let's first of all talk about this show. So we've got Josh Gates and Bill Shatner, you know, out on this epic adventure. How did that come about? And did they like ask you to set up an adventure for them or what was your involvement? Well, I I worked with Josh a couple of years ago on a show where we were looking at um, Megalodon. And so we kind of built up a bit of a relationship on that. We did some diving with Mako Sharks. And so his team reached out and said, you know, would you be excited to work with us on another another possible show? And obviously, I'm not going to say no. Um, Mm. And then when they talked about who else was going to be involved on the show, I was very excited because I used to watch um, Star Trek as a kid. And then the, the concept was just trying to understand more about, I guess, people's fear of sharks and where that comes from. And they wanted to spend time with some of the most weird and bizarre looking sharks. And, and, and that's where I got involved because I work with great hammerheads and one of the main species I work with, as well as small tooth sawfish, too. So uh, let's dive into that work, because I know, I mean, how long have you been out of Bahamas for working? Wow. So I first went to the Bahamas in 2005. So we're now looking at about 16 years I've been in and out of the Bahamas. And I mainly work with this little lemon shark. That was my species of focus when I first started, looking at social behavior and group living. And then kind of the last five or six years, I've started learning more about threatened species and and how they use the different habitats and waters in the Bahamas. And and my wife and I have established a nonprofit now called Saving the Blue. And, and that's one of our main objectives is learning more about these threatened species. So in doing all that work, I know that you used to, uh, you used to live at the field station, right? At the Bimini Field Station? <laughs> yeah. So you went from, you know, living and bunking. I assume that's why you were doing your PhD. And then now you've moved on to, you know, starting a foundation. And uh, am I correct in saying, uh, didn't you buy a piece of land? And you're turning that into another research station out there? We're very close. We're very close. Yes. So we're, we're hoping to set up a field station in Andros, which is the biggest island in the Bahamas. It has the smallest population. It's incredibly remote, really pristine, beautiful habitats. And of course, lots of sharks and rays. But we know basically next to nothing about the animals that use this huge island. And so what we're hoping to do is set up a small scale field station to be able to run our research and education and outreach for 24-7 pretty much. 
Yeah. So in your in your work with, as you say, sort of the weird, wonderful, and strange species of sharks. I mean, give people at home who might not have seen a lot of Bahamas kind of a, a rundown from your experience in in those odd species that you might find out there. I, I guess the two most bizarre looking species that are seen in the Bahamas are the great hammerhead shark and the small tooth sawfish. And the great hammerhead is the biggest of all the hammerhead species. It can grow up to 20 feet long and it has that obviously weird head on the front of its nose. And of course, another really weird looking animal is the, is the small tooth sawfish. And people always assume that that's another shark, but it's actually a ray. It has its gills on the underside and it has like a hedge trimmer for a snout. And they can get huge as well, up to 20 feet long. And we believe that the Bahamas is, is one of very few locations across the world that actually might have a viable population of this species. So we're really excited to learn more about that and have worked with various collaborators looking at movement and habitat use of both of those species. So when a production company comes to you and says, hey, we've got a few hours or a day or you know, a very finite amount of time and we want to see some extremely rare and difficult to find species of sharks, can you just set that all up? We'll be in at two out by three. How does a, an order like that come across to you? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, small tooth sawfish are incredibly rare to see. Yeah. So it's, it's not like we can just hop in a boat and, and off we go. And, and to be honest, just seeing sharks anyways is not easy. You know, typically they're quite cryptic. They're quite secretive. You know, they live in this expansive world. And so, you, you know, you can't just nip out on a boat and go and see them. And this is why we chose to, to set the scene at the start of this exciting Shark Weeks show at um, the Atlantis Resort, where they have... Um, this population, small population of small tooth sawfish. In fact, they have a captive breeding program where they managed to have little baby sawfish that are now almost adults. So it was a really exciting moment to be able to see those animals and to be able to show Josh and Bill, um, you know, some of the most bizarre looking animals really close up because you would never get that opportunity, you know, typically in the wild. Yeah, I've spent my fair share of time looking for both those species and with mixed results. Um, but let's, let's check out their uh, adventure in the aquarium because it was quite a special thing to be able to see both of these species. And both of them got a little bit close for comfort for Mr. William Shatner. Holy cats, look at this. Look at this coming at us. Coming right up, right toward us. Oh boy. Stand your ground, stand your ground. Look at that, holy cats. Whoa! Is that a thrill? Unbelievable. What are you doing up there? I'm behind you! What are you talking about? I'm hiding! <laughs> okay, so we're putting some pretty big profile celebrities in the water, wading around up to their chest with great hammerheads swimming around. Good idea? Bad idea? What were your thoughts? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a great idea. Why not let them let them get nice and close to these iconic animals and, and get to experience them, you know, close up and personal? You know, there's nothing quite like you, you hear all these stories about these amazing creatures, these big sharks and rays. But unless you actually see one in the flesh, it, you know, you can't quite believe how they've evolved, how they've adapted um, into these incredible animals so to be right next to one and be able to see one and talk about one and have one swim past you is mm. it's just one of those amazing experiences that you can't explain to someone are they able to keep the great hammerheads there at atlantis you know year round or they kind of bring them in and, and put them back out again it's a fairly large shark to keep there right 
Yeah, I mean, the one the one thing that I would say about Atlantis that makes it very special is that they have this flow through system. So mm. the water there is constantly being flow, uh, flowed through from from the actual ocean. So it's a very healthy system to be in place. I'm not exactly sure what their policy is on keeping the great hammerheads, but I know with with other species that they they um, pull them in and out. So I think with the manta rays, for example, they have them in for a year or so and then they release them again. And they have a recovery program for some of the turtles and dolphins as well um, for injured individuals um, and those that have been stranded and things like that. And I know that the the senior aquarist there was planning on hoping to release some of those sawfish, which would be, which would be great given you know mm. their populations are in global decline. Be nice to to see a few of those released because I think there's around seven or eight of them they now have because of those pups growing up to big ones. I would have given my I teeth to find seven or eight <laughs> small tooth sawfish when we're out looking for them. I mean, even finding one is difficult. So I think, you know, the contribution of a facility like that to be able to, you know, replenish um, populations that are, you know, in decline and, and endangered is pretty amazing. Yeah, you know, it, it makes me think about, you know, when I was, you know, young marine biologist full of, you know, <laughs> full of bluster and, and hot air. Um, I remember being down in Honduras and talking to people, um, as I did, I'd do like talks every other night about different sharks. And in that area, I was working with whale sharks. And, um, you know, I was talking about keeping big sharks in captivity. And I used to rail against it. Yeah, I, I really didn't have much more thought other than if you want to go see them, go find them. You know, there are ways to go do it, go see them. And, but I think, you know, as I've perhaps got more maturity or, you know, learned more or whatever else, I've, I've, changed how I see aquariums and the, the work that they do and contribution that they have. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts, because you do a lot of work in sort of both places, um, especially out in the wild. So how do you look at aquariums and, and their, you know, service to marine biology and sharks in general? I mean, I, I would say I was exactly the same as you. When I was growing up, I, I, you know, okay, I went to a few aquariums when I was younger, but I always didn't really understand particularly some of the bigger sharks, why they would be there. But I guess that actually fueled my passion for those animals and wanting mm. to protect them and, and learn about them and have a career with them. You know, and I see my children's reaction when, when we've taken them to, to aquariums and it clearly inspires the younger generation. So I think there's, that's obviously one massive benefit. But I also know a, a lot of these aquariums will contribute to research too. You know, some of those bigger animals are very difficult to work with in the wild. And you can then do observations. You can look at their reproductive biology. A good example is that in Atlantis, we know that those baby sawfish uh, took around eight years to reach sexual maturity hmm. um, because you're able to monitor them from when they were born all the way up to now that they are mature. And that corroborates what scientists believe is going on in the wild from mm. growth rate studies in the wild. So it can be a useful way of contributing to our understanding of the biology of these animals. But I think there's a balance there. And if you can switch some of these animals out and especially the ones that are longer living, then I, you know, ideally you would want to do that, but mm. you know, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And I, I guess it, it is also sort of species dependent, you know, some, do quite well in a captive environment. Some, you know, might need to be cycled in and out. You know, 
I remember some rather unsuccessful um, efforts at keeping great white sharks in aquariums, you know, for example, versus like the, uh, the small tooth sawfish. They seem to, I, I don't know if thrive is the right word, but they seem to do pretty well in that facility. Yeah, exactly. You've got that flow through system, yeah. um, which provides, you know, all the ambient conditions that they would be used to. They obviously don't have any predators to worry about, any competition for food. Uh, you know, and they're a benthic species anyway that spends quite a lot of time on the bottom resting. So, you know, I think if it's done in a nice and, and, and that habitat, that lagoon as well, it, you know, is well maintained, is well managed. It's decent space for some of those bigger animals, too. So I think it can be quite an effective tool um, for inspiring kids and, and for learning more about the biology of these animals. But, you know, I agree with you. I find it quite difficult sometimes seeing those huge animals in there. And, I, you know, I'd love to have them out in the wild but you know we need ways to improve their conservation and management and and the aquariums definitely have a role with that and can have a role yeah so kind of switching gears here and going into you know out into the wild now away from the aquarium now i know that you weren't at you weren't on the parts of the shoot that then went out to like tiger beach and out to zanardo's operation right no, I wasn't, sadly. They just didn't want me. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you're doing that in I was actually, I was very happy to just talk about the sawfish and, and hammerheads. Um, yeah, so, and you, you gotta, you, you gotta give love to other scientists as well. You know, I'm very privileged to, to have opportunities to work with some of these amazing, uh, amazing people and celebrities. And, and I think it's good to mix it up and get other people in there with, with their expertise as well. Oh, for sure. Um, in, in what you do, I know with your, you know, nonprofit and just general work, um, you do a fair bit of work in getting people out into the open water and seeing, you know, sharks out in the wild. Um, talk to me about the complications of, you know, running that with both, you know, the science focused mind as well as sort of the business mind that you're putting towards it and making it sustainable for both the animals and, and yourself. Well, you know, when I was running the, the Bimini Shark Lab, you know, we we would host university courses where people that were doing degrees in marine biology would learn about uh, sharks and behavior. But we found that when we had, you know, the general public would come around the facility, people would be keen on, on having these experiences. And we quickly realized that, you know, that we could run potentially a, a field trip or a, a week long course for just the general public, people that have passion about sharks and want to learn more and, and want to have that insight into what a scientist's job is and so you know we started running these these types of trips when I was in Bimini and then you know when we started our non-profit uh, in Andros and running trips there you know we needed a, a mechanism to help actually pay for the research and so that's what our trips actually do you know we have people that come on these trips and they pay for the food the accommodation the boat and then they help us on these trips and, and we get to, to then have uh, research opportunities and we're able to then sponsor some of the local students. There's a Marine Institute on Andros called BAMSI and we're able to take some of those local kids out as well. Uh, and it's all funded by essentially the public that are excited about learning about research and sharks and want to have close up encounters with them. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really helpful mechanism and a different way of, of, of basically being able to, to run research because traditionally you would have to apply for grants through mm. the government or through private foundations. And, and we've kind of find a, a different way of being able to fund some of this stuff, which is, you know, important. Yeah. And the, uh, so the, the general premise other than seeing, you know, William Shatner underwater, which is 
pretty amazing. <laughs> um, Gosh, unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, he, he really did pretty good. I mean, you, you put him in with the hammerheads and then with the small tooth. And I know that you were kind of coaching them through on, on how to um, best deal with these predators in very close proximity. Um, what was your advice to him as he went in the water? I mean, the advice was just to stay calm and relax and just enjoy it. You know, the the less movements you make, the more kind of low profile you are, the, the more likely you'll get a close encounter with them. Obviously, in the constraints of an aquarium or, you know, an area like that, it's difficult for the animals to move away from you. But, you know, staying still and watching from a distance uh, safely is always a, a great way to see those those animals. And, yeah, he was he was unbelievable. I, I had no idea when he told me he was over, I think he was 90 or 91. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought he was 80, the way he was acting, um, or even younger yeah. than that, to be honest. He was so enthusiastic, so motivated. You know, he just wanted to learn. He wanted to be in the water. And he was, you know, invited us out for dinner every night. You know, he's such a lovely man. Yeah. Well, not only did he get to dive in the aquarium, but he did get to go out into the wild and check out some other species. Let's listen to the clip. In a flash, sharks are everywhere. Reef sharks, nurse sharks, everyone wants a taste. The biggest eater is just bellying up to the bar. There is a massive tiger, probably 17 feet. That one is huge. Are you doing okay, Bill? This is crazy. It's circling back towards us. Don't panic, just be ready to react. Josh, watch out! Okay, so we've got, you know, Huge celebrities out with, you know, tiger sharks now and Caribbean reef sharks experiencing, you know, the bounties of those waters. Um, what I wanted to kind of like talk to you about is what Bahamas is doing and tell me if you're not super knowledgeable about this, but what Bahamas is doing to kind of help that be more sustainable. Because I know they've had a few incidents recently with, you know, fishing and capture in what's supposed to be a shark sanctuary. What, what's going on there? Well, I mean, the Bahamas back in the early 90s, they banned they banned commercial and commercial long lining and gill netting, which was just an amazing decision, forward thinking decision, because ultimately, you know, a lot of those sharks get caught in those in those devices globally. And fast forward another 20 years, they then protected sharks and sharks, not rays, only mm. shark through the shark sanctuary, where there's no import or export of any shark products. You know, and they've had a, a bustling ecotourism with shark diving for, for many years now. And yes, there are now and again a few incidents with these animals. Um, you know, I, I do think it would be useful to implement um, maybe a structure to how these dives should be safely carried out, maybe have licenses or permits for shark operators or dive operators like Stuart Cove, like Neil mm. Watson, that that do it in a safe way and have been working these areas for a long time um, so that you can you know, avoid any of these uh, negative effects. And, and I think, yeah, it can be a very positive experience for many people. You know, we, we have extra funding opportunities because of, mm. you know, because of these sharks and because of people wanting to dive with sharks. Um, but yes, but you do, you know, that there are key guidelines and, mm. you know, one of the things we do when we snorkel with the sharks, we make sure everyone wears a full wetsuit Everyone has gloves on, booties, you know, and we don't expose any of our skin because your hand flashing with a ring can look like a you know, piece of food or something like that. So you definitely need to be very careful 
about what you're doing and, and how you conduct yourself. But I think it can be done in a very sustainable way. That's that's okay. That's good for the sharks and good for the people too. Sure. And I know yourself and your wife, Annie, have been very passionate about conservation out there and about spreading awareness of, you know, sharks and their situation and also their protection out there. Um, and I have seen recently, I think it was a, a post from Annie or something about uh, sharks being targeted by people out there. What is, what is the recourse? I mean, when you're out there and you see sharks or people that are, are targeting them for fishing or, or capturing one way or another, what is your communication channel to help convey that to authorities and, and see if there can be repercussions? So what we would do is we would communicate to the different departments, so the Department of Marine Resources and the Department of Environmental Protection, which has just been recently established, DEP, um, and we would then communicate to them because they, the Bahamas have become uh, you know, a lot more aware of, of research and, and making sure the permitting process is appropriate. You know, they want to protect these animals that clearly generate a lot for their economy. Mm. And so, you know, it really is important that any anyone breaking the law gets gets reprimanded for it and gets the, the, the necessary fines because clearly those animals are worth a lot more to the Bahamas um, alive than they are being fished. So, you know, and, and I think it was... Um, I don't know where it was. Someone from the US potentially came over and I think they, yeah. they silky shark was what you were talking about. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, all we can do is deliver that information to the authorities and hope that they, that they will follow it up. You know, I know they take it very seriously. And, and one of the big things for us that's important is, in, is, is having young Bahamians involved mm -hmm. and providing opportunities to Bahamians too, because there are a lot of young kids that love sharks over there. And it's just a matter of giving them opportunities. And, and that's what we're hoping to do through our scholarships. And we've got a project with a, a chap that's working on, um, on sawfish in Andros, where he'll be interviewing the rest of the bone fishermen and other guides and other water users over there to learn more about their space use and habitat use. And, and that's something that's really important to me is, is, is trying to empower and inspire those younger kids to, to take up you know, managerial positions and scientific positions in, in the Bahamas. Well, speaking about what's important to you, it's a great segue to that. Um, I know that you recently just published, and I'd love you to kind of talk about what, what research you're doing right now and what, uh, what papers you've been working on uh, that help us learn more about it, like how you're using your time out there. Well, we, we actually did just publish a paper looking at the impacts of the provisioning um, mm -hmm. in Bimini on the great hammerhead sharks. And what's interesting is although some of these animals are actually getting almost their daily ration, like what they would need to eat per day to survive from the dive operators and doing that across the winter months, they're still departing on their typical migrations and they're going away the whole of those summer months and returning you know, around November, December time. So although they are getting a, an extra buffet during the, the, sun, uh, the winter, it's not keeping them more resident to the areas. They're still going on those migrations. So it's not having, um, you know, too bad an impact on those animals. If anything, it's giving them, you know, extra food um, potentially during their gestation period where they're trying to feed up. Um, but I do think that, you know, there should be some more kind of local management of how much is fed to these animals mm. um, to try and reduce that impact as well. And, and one of the big projects we've got is trying to learn more about how these great hammerheads um, from the US and from the Bahamas are connected. You know, is it one big population or is it, you know, is there a separate kind of pop subpopulation of maybe 
great hammerheads that stick around more in the Bahamas. We've got evidence of one female that stayed the whole of the summer months, which is the first time I've ever seen that. So there, there's something else going on there. And that obviously have implications for how, you know, we can protect them and conserve them moving forward. So uh, that's that's what we're on at the moment is trying to learn more about migratory pathways of, of some of these more highly mobile species like the great hammerheads and also the silky sharks, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, on that research, which is amazing, by the way, I, I got to read some of it and I was like, OK, I love that you did this because, you know, there, there's so much talk, especially in the shark diving industry about either complete no fault, hey, we don't change anything, we don't do anything, you know, these sharks are just wild animals, uh, through to people, you know, kind of copping to it and saying, all right, there is some change, but, you know, we don't know what change really means. And somebody like yourself comes along and goes, actually, here is scientific data that backs up exactly what's going on and that we might be having some effect on their behaviours, but not changing the overall perspective and picture of their, of their life cycle, which I think is, you know, really the take-home point. Um, but I'm curious with the development of that site there, uh, and this is, it was Bimini, right, where you did the research on the Great Hammerheads? So I remember when, uh, when Tiger Beach really kind of started, you know, it was, you know, a little before my time, but I was there kind of in the early days as it was being explored as a, as a commercial shark diving location. This is what? 12, 13 years ago now. Um, and I remember going out there and it was basically a, a lemon shark dive. Um, we'd take out cages and everything and, and no one really knew what was going on with it. And you'd see these tiger sharks come in and they'd be really sketched out. They'd try to steal our bait boxes and occasionally you'd see them. And it was, it was kind of a real mission to see them. But then as the site developed, I mean, now we go out there and it's, it's tiger shark heaven and they'll come up and take bait right out of your hands. Obviously, skilled handlers and everything. But it, it really did develop as a site. And you can tell that there is more you know, site fidelity for the tigers at Tiger Beach because they, they know they're coming there for X reason. And X reason might be people, might be provisioning, might be whatever. And it seemed to me a similar kind of thing was happening with the great hammerheads because they didn't used to come to that site that frequently, correct? Well, so what's interesting is I was there in 2005 through to 2009, mm. and I never, ever got to snorkel or be in the water with a great hammerhead in that whole time period. We People had had you know, encounters with them on the flats. I'd seen them. Uh, I, I knew of occasions where people had got to snorkel with them, but it was, it was very rare indeed. And it wasn't until some of the managers decided to kind of start baiting on that drop-off on the edge. Mm. And every day off, they'd start seeing these hammerheads and, and then it was they put some tags on them, these little external dark tags. And the same individuals would be coming back. And, and this kind of, when I came back in 2012, I then thought, well, this is an amazing opportunity. We know very little about this animal. It's endangered globally. You know, what's going on? Where are the sharks from? How long do they stick around? You know, all these crazy questions are coming out. Um, and that's when the, the start of the project went ahead and, and coincidentally Neil Watson and I think Stuart Cove had been in, introduced to the site and they started feeding with the you know the diving protocol similar to Tiger Beach and yes it was it was quite interesting because there's a core group of females particularly females that are really dominant and that basically know the score they come in they have very distinctive behaviors how they act how they feed um, and I think what it does I, I think with those animals you know, they're basically a little bit more local to Bimini during the winter months than they would normally have been. Mm. I think 
they would have been cruising um, that drop off along the western edge of the, the, the Bahamas Bank, probably between the other Ks, north and south of Bimini. But most likely they would have been in that area anyway. And I think the, the feeding basically just localizes them a little bit more. And what I would suspect happens is that it increases the carrying capacity of the Bimini ecosystem for hammerheads. So mm. there are other hammerheads that are using Bimini now that would probably have been outcompeted. Mm. And so you've basically got more hammerheads that are now using Bimini. Um, now, what impact it does have on the ecosystem there, on, on the growth rates of these animals and all that type of stuff, I, I don't really know. Um, but as we said at the start of this, what is good news is that it doesn't seem to be impacting, you know, their annual cycle mm. and where they're going to. Um, you know, we've got evidence of hammerheads from Bimini that have gone to Carolina and Georgia and the Keys literally every single year and then come back to Bimini during the winter months. And some of these females, you know, are close to 12, 14 feet long and have been coming back to Bimini every single winter for like eight years. Mm. I mean, it's unbelievable how, how, you know, how they actually return to the same place and they're using yeah. the same sites. Um, yeah. Even some of these highly mobile animals that you wouldn't expect to do that. It's really interesting to me that you mentioned that, uh, that Bimini now because of the feeding or provisioning, I should say, but uh, is perhaps even more of a, a haven for hammerheads. You know, it encourages them more to come in and use those waters because you're right, the, those bigger ones would be out competing a lot of what's going on. And that might feed into, you know, my next thought. And this is probably a almost impossible thing to, to really study without the, the data from before. But do you think that it's having uh, any impact on, you know, the fish stocks or local marine ecology in not having those hammerheads out there patrolling? Or it, uh, are the extra ones taking over that role and it's just pretty much the same? Yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult to know that. I mean, yeah. one thing we do know is that a lot of these big predators, they don't just have direct consumptive like eating effects on prey. They also have fear effects where they... You know, animals will use different habitats or avoid habitats because of the presence of some of these sharks um, or some of these bigger predators. There's great examples of that with with tiger sharks in um, in, in Western Australia mm. um, with various different prey species there. And, and something similar could be happening happening here in, um, you know, in, in Bimini with with stingrays and, and other local species, too. You know, and the next steps will be to, to start to, to learn more about that and and also to track some of these individuals that are not provisioned that aren't being fed but are using Bimini versus mm. the, the individuals that are provisioned and then comparing their, their movement networks and space use and, and see what the differences are. Um, and that's something that, uh, that uh, one of the PhD students that's just finishing up at the, the Shark Lab now, Vital Haim, is, is working on, um, which is really exciting. That sounds like a, a very broad scale question to have to answer though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, how do you even go about that? I mean, obviously is, you know, start small and work your way out, but implying to entire ecosystem use, I mean, that's. Well, at the moment it, we're looking at local movements. That's the next step. Okay. So we've got information about which animals turned up at the site, how often they'd spend there, how much they would eat. And the next step is, okay, well, how are their, how are their movements impacted by this provisioning? outside of the, the provisioning dives? Are mm. they more localized than the individuals that are not feeding at the site? Um, and then you start building up that way. And of course you can you know, look into taking tissue samples to see if their role within the, 
the food web is potentially changing from a provisioned animal versus unprovisioned. Yeah. I mean, the moment you start a project, you just, there's more questions, you know, you emerge. Yeah, it's, it's planting a tree and watching the roots go like this, right? It's, it gets pretty nice. There's so much variation between individuals and how yeah. they respond and how they migrate. You know, when I was working in Bimini, we, you know, as I said before, we had animals that would migrate north every year. We had some that would go to the Keys. We've now got evidence of, of one from Andros that's gone all the way into um, Tampa. I mean, wow. you know, it's, there's so much variation uh, among these individuals and it makes it really difficult because you then need to start, you know, we need like 30 or 40 animals to really be able mm. to make any inferences and they're quite rare animals as it is. So being able to obtain that many is, is, is tricky and it makes it tough to, to answer these questions, but we need to because the species is, you know, globally not doing very well. I mean, locally, I actually think great, great hammerheads are, are, are hopefully doing okay, you know, mm. because of the protections in the Bahamas. The US as well has a, a pretty good um, shark fishery management in place. And, you know, they're very aware of, of the fact that these hammerheads get caught in long lines. And, and at the moment, we're working on a project uh, with fishery managers to, to try and look at that overlap between where the commercial fisheries are fishing and when they are catching hammerheads versus where the actual hammerheads are and seeing if we can put in these time place closures to avoid catching capturing these sharks and it's the same for scalloped hammerheads too so it's it's really exciting to think that some of the work that we're doing is actually going to you know um, really help to to manage these animals and to conserve them into the future so that both our kids can go and swim with great hammerhead sharks yeah, I actually look forward to that. I'm going to hit you up for that in just a second. But uh, having just, uh, you know, having just published and, and done so much work, I mean, I don't know if people really understand how much work goes into, you know, what ends up being a paper that, you know, in the life cycle of a scientist, you have to publish or perish, right? So what's, what's your next thing? Is it, is it leading on from that research or are you starting up something entirely new? Uh, no, I have a student at the moment that's working pretty hard on all the, the great hammerhead projects. And, you know, they just constantly evolve. You know, you, you need big teams of people to work with. You know, you need someone that can help with some of the data analysis. Uh, you need people that are imaginative and creative when it comes to asking new questions and interpreting some of this analysis and data, too. You need people that are good writers, mm. um, you know, and, and obviously as well. With Saving the Blue, a lot of our funding is generated through the public and through social media and through kind of getting out into the, the, the public eye. And I'm lucky that I have a very talented wife who's a photographer and, and very good at that marketing and business savvy. Mm. So we're able to kind of combine um, our expertise to then, you know, hopefully make a big difference for these animals. Well, that's one of the things I love about watching you guys working as a team and also with your you know, students and everything else. But um, you have set up kind of a, a way to not only go and see sharks and see all that, but also to, uh, to piggyback on research and to learn about sharks along the way. I, I think that, you know, tourism versus scientific tourism is so different. And, and I love what you guys are doing. So, you know, give us a plug for Saving the Blue and what you guys are doing, what people can do with you, what they can learn. Well, I would say if you're someone that is passionate about sharks and marine life and you just want to have that insight into or, or be able to help someone, you know, our research projects, you want to learn more about research and sharks, then, you know, come on a trip with us. We, we run these week-long expeditions. You don't need to be 
a marine biology major. You don't need to have, you don't, you don't need to be an amazing scuba diver. You don't need to be super fit either. Like anyone can come and join us on these trips. If you're passionate, if you're motivated, and if you, you're just interested in, in learning more about these animals, then, then you can come and join us. And you can get in the water with these sharks as well as contribute to meaningful research that will hopefully make a difference for them too. And that's the big thing for us is making these opportunities accessible to anyone. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter what you do, what background you have, you'll always have something that you can that you can help. You know, I've had some great conversations with people that are not scientists, that are not trained in science, you know, that might be an engineer or or even a you know a chef or anything, and they've got something useful that can help me mm. you know with with what i'm trying to do and it, it is great to have diverse minds working on these problems and, and bringing in people from all over the world uh, with different skill sets um you know to to help uh with with learning about these animals and in terms of making it accessible and this is where i get to hit you up my four-year-old is absolutely obsessed with hammerheads she calls them hammer sharks i can't get her to call a hammerhead yet um but you take kids on these trips as well right because I'm bringing her over and she's snorkeling with a great hammerhead. That's, that's going to happen. You know, I have two, two children as well, five and seven. And, yeah. and my thing with them has always been, you know, if they really want to do it, then, then I'll do it. I, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy for them to have those experiences as long as they choose to do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, at the moment, I, I think the youngest we've maybe had on a trip was, was 12 or 14. But mm. you can certainly have, you know, half, half day experiential days where you can, where, where children can get to see these animals too. And yeah. well, that's the big thing that we want to try and do with, with the children that live in Andros, because a lot of them, um, you know, they, they, they don't even know how to swim. They don't have a swimming pool like we do to go and learn how to swim. They have mm-hmm. the ocean and the ocean is quite an intimidating place to learn how to swim. You know, there's currents, there's waves, you know, it's not easy. So that's something that we're really excited about too, is, is giving those kids on the, on the islands the opportunity to explore the, the, the habitats and animals that are right on their doorstep. Well, I'm definitely bringing over my five-year-old to, to take part in that. It'd be uh, super fun. And uh, hopefully by then you, you healed up a bit. I hear you uh, had a bit of a blue with a shark and uh, threw you back out. What, what happened there? Yeah, we have a new project where we're, where we're trying to learn more about silky sharks. They're an open ocean species. They travel long distances and, and we know very little about them in the, in, the, in the Atlantic. And they're also very social. They mm. hang out in schools and I've always loved behavior of sharks. So they're, they're a species I'm pretty excited about. And yeah, I was, I was equipping one with a satellite tag on its dorsal fin and I was leaning over and I'm getting old and yeah. And the back went, so I've been bed laden for the last uh, week and a half. Didn't, didn't anybody tell you about sharks being such a dangerous species? Like they'll throw you back out like that, right? I know exactly. <laughs> you know, Terrible no tells you about that. There's no warning on the satellite. <laughs> There's if you attach me to the shark, remember to wear a back brace and <laughs> seek chiropractic help. <laughs> keep your core muscles strong. So uh, yeah, you know. Better that than a bite, then I guess. <laughs> exactly. I'd probably prefer a, a back a back issue than a than a bite. Yeah. Well, I hope you heal up well, mate. We'll be seeing you really soon. And uh, thanks for joining us here today. Uh, to everyone at home, that's your daily bite. Thanks so much for joining us. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get those podcasts. So I'll see you on the next daily bite. But until then, happy Shark Week. <laughs>